You're listening to Stealing from Wizards, Volume 2, Burglary, by R.A. Consul. Chapter 22, Immovable Objects The rest of Solstice Break passed much too quickly. Between cooking meals and odd jobs, Kuro felt the days fly by. In the small gaps, he took time to practice his familiar summoning. With Charlie's happy help and the cozy comfort of the farm, he was worse than ever. He could barely get a wisp of smoke to manifest. He might have had better luck if he'd tried while being menaced by a manticore, but he couldn't risk that kind of injury while he had something in the oven and he always had something in the oven. Just as Kuro was settling into the rhythm of farm life, it was over. On the last day before they had to head back to school, Mr. Cook called Kuro outside to help him chop wood. That was a strange request for a couple of reasons. The first was that they already had a lot of wood and needed very little. The house was heated through magical appliances. The fireplace was mostly for show. The other was that Charlie was much better than either of them at chopping wood. She could use her magic to drop an axe through a log from 20 feet away while reading a book. Kuro, on the other hand, could barely swing the axe. It was too big for him, the chopping block was too high for him, and trying to use his own brand of magic would probably end with the head of the axe embedded permanently in something or someone. It turned out that the wood chopping was just a ruse. A way to get Kuro alone somewhere, Charlie wouldn't eavesdrop. Once Mr. Cook had chopped his way through enough logs to be convincing, he said, I'm glad you could join us for the holiday. That was the sort of thing Crow might have taken at face value, but something about an axe slamming down right after he said it set a different tone. Thank you, said Crow, which seemed a safe choice. He wasn't afraid of Charlie's father. He had shown every sign of being a genuinely kind and friendly man. Crow couldn't help but calculate whether he could escape the situation, though. It was an old habit that he had made no effort to break. It's been good having you here, said Mr. Cook. Not just for the cooking, that was an unexpected bonus. He laughed and gave Kuro a gentle punch on the shoulder. I mean, it was good to get to know you. I've heard so much about you, but a lot of that's Charlie's stories, which can be a little... He took a moment to search for the right word. Creative. Kuro nodded in understanding. It was a bit weird, you know. Both the ladies in my life think you like family, and I barely met you. Charlie's basically decided that you're her brother, and Elena loved you like a son. She talked a lot about you after she got free of that Phineas. That hit Kuro like a spear through the heart. Helena had been kidnapped and forced to feed and teach Kuro. By all rights, she should have hated and resented Kuro. The suggestion that she had cared for him was unwelcome news. There was a long silence, metered out by the steady thumping of an axe into wood, before Kuro could mutter, I'm sorry. What fur? asked Mr. Cook. It's my fault she died, Kuro replied. If it weren't for me, everything would be fine. The next axe fall landed like thunder, and Mr. Cook rounded on Kuro. Never say that, he said with rising anger. Never even think that. None of what happened was your fault. Elena would have told you that herself if she could. Tore her apart when she thought you'd died after the hounds raided Phineas Earn's hideout. She blamed herself for not being able to get you out safely. Helena was a warrior. She would have fought through an army if she thought she could save you. Kuro was dumbstruck by the strange fury in Mr. Cook's voice. 
It wasn't directed at Kuro at all, but it was just too big to contain, and it peaked as he said the name of Kuro's former master. It took a few deep breaths for Mr. Cook to be able to unclench his jaw and speak normally. Do you know what finally broke Hearn's hold over Helena? He asked. Kuro shook his head. He wanted her to train you to kill. She wasn't chosen by accident, you know. She used to be a Valkyrie, one of the Winter King's personal guard. He sounded proud of her having that title. Hearn snatched her because she could make you into a soldier for him. She could have fought a frost giant to a standstill, but Hearn didn't fight fair. Just put a spell on her brain. She said that his magic worked best when she was doing things that came naturally. Caring for a kid in trouble, teaching a child to read a book, that was fine. Hearn didn't think teaching you to fight would be anything different, but training a five-year-old how to murder, that isn't natural. It wasn't enough for her to turn on him, but it was enough to break away and run. She told the hounds about you, and they were meant to save you. You should have seen how angry she was when they didn't. Nearly stormed the granite citadel herself. If it wasn't for Charlie, she might have. When I found out you were alive and Ern was in chains, well, you don't know how happy that would have made Helena. His story had turned slowly from angry to sad over its course and ended wistful, with him just staring at the clouds. I didn't know that, was all Kuro could think to say. Didn't much expect you to, replied Mr. Cook. I kind of thought you should. Didn't go quite like I planned it, but it's said now, so there it is. He let out a long sigh and let the axe rest. I mean it, though. I'm glad you could come. It was really nice getting to know you. Kuro really didn't know what to do with any of the information he'd been given. Between the things Mr. Cook had said and the cryptic revelations of the coyote, Kuro's head was muddled. All the events of his life remained the same, but they had been turned upside down. Kuro tossed and turned for a long time that night while his mind tried to make sense of what everything meant. If what he'd been told was to be believed, Helena had run away for him rather than from him, He'd been adopted by a street and was in a romantic relationship with air currents. Could any of it be true? How many of the things Helena had taught him were because Phineas had made her? And how many had she chosen as a way to help Kuro? How many of the secret places and safe havens in Detritus Lane had Kuro discovered? And how many had been revealed to him by the lane? Did the wind help him run and jump because he wanted it to? Or because it wanted to? Did any of it make a difference? He felt like he was looking at the world through a warped mirror and wasn't sure which side of the reflection was the real one. Kuro slept poorly, and his thoughts continued to wrestle with each other during the trip to the ferry the next day. The routine of ferry boarding helped him crawl out of the recesses of his mind and reconnect with reality. Greetings between friends, shouts of complaint at having to go back to school, the wash of the increasingly ice-covered bay against the veil and the warning whistle of the boat were all clear and present and real. That helped. A clumsy insult from Evelyn Lemieux helped even more. What a lovely chapeau, she said, looking down her nose at the nice warm hat Kuro had been given. Kuro waited for the threat or insult to follow, but it didn't come. Apparently, she thought it was adequate to just point out that he was, in fact, wearing a hat. Something which she was not doing. A hat would unsettle her perfect locks. She had chosen, instead, to wear a dress of elegant silks, which wouldn't have been warm enough for late spring, let alone a chilly winter day at the edge of the water. The snow on the pavement around her had all melted away from her efforts to generate enough magical heat to make her outfit bearable. But even so, 
the wind was whipping by strongly enough that she was fighting not to visibly shiver or hide in her carriage. Crow considered for a moment that the wind might be a closer ally than he had credited. Crow and Charlie had no need to stand around a parking lot posing in fancy new solstice clothes, trying to impress the other royalty. They boarded the ferry and found a good spot to settle. Charlie built a blanket nest in a bench seat on a lower deck, which would keep her propped up for the journey through the Blandlands, and Crow rolled under her chair and curled up, planning to sleep his way across the bay. The ship slowly filled. It was a quiet and subdued crowd. All of the other voyages were full of enthusiasm and noise. This trip lacked the anticipation of the others. They weren't escaping school for celebrations or summer, and they hadn't been gone long enough to miss their friends or forget about what was waiting for them once classes resumed. There were no excited squeals or songs of joy, just a collective sigh of resignation. Eventually, Arthur found them. Or rather, Moira found them with Arthur in tow. She informed them that they would have the pleasure of her company for the duration of the trip. Marie appeared shortly after, looking groggier than Kuro felt and moving with less enthusiasm than most. How was your holiday? asked Charlie. Fine, I think, said Marie. I don't like it when they give our memories back. Everything gets mixed up in my head. I feel like I just left Avalon for vacation and that I'm coming back, both. You're coming back from vacation, Arthur said helpfully. I know that, grumbled Marie. It's just confusing. She slammed herself into the seat next to Charlie as the engines started up and the boat started to move. Did you get anything good for Solstice? Asked Charlie eagerly and then failed to give anyone time to respond. I got new jeans and this sweater and a sword and a shield for my grandparents and Kuro gave me a really funny book from the Blandlands. Kuro also gave me a Blandlands book, said Arthur. Did you like your presents, Kuro? Oh yeah, I got a nice mortar and pestle and this warm hat. It was great. Arthur's face fell a bit and there was an uncomfortable silence before he said, Is that all? Oh, and a card from Marie, said Kuro. Thanks for that. Did I give you a card? She replied, searching her muddy memories. Oh yeah, I sent it with Charlie. Did you not get Arthur's gift? Demanded Moira. It should have arrived via post over Solstice Eve. The Luton Post? Asked Kuro. Yes, of course the Luton Post, replied Moira. What other post is there? Well, Moira missed the message entirely, Arthur buried his face in his hands, remembering too late the issue Kuro had with getting mail. I'm sorry, I forgot. It's okay, said Kuro. I bet it was great. How about you, Marie? Did you get anything nice for Noel? Marie tried to clear the cobwebs out of her mind. Mostly clothes, she said. And a new journal, and a nice rock. Oh yeah, Kuro gave me a piece of pyrite. It was nice. I don't remember telling you I collected rocks. What's pyrite? asked Kuro. A fool's gold, said Marie. And then her face fell. Her pleasantly befuddled expression became a mask of horror. She grabbed her backpack and started rummaging in panic, but it was too late. The boat passed out into the Blandlands, and as the edge of the veil swept over them, her bag was torn from her hands. While the boat drove out into the bay, the lump of gold in her bag stayed still, trapped against the barrier between worlds. It knocked over benches, shredded Marie's backpack, punched through steel walls, tore through the innards of the ship, and ripped out the back of the hull. 
A few minutes later, Kuro and Marie found themselves staring at Knight Commander Talon Dubois, with the slightly mangled hunk of gold on the table between them. He had been there to see his children off to school. When the ferry groaned its way back into the dock moments after departure, he had been quick to investigate the source of the trouble. His daughter had been quicker to report it. While the boat underwent emergency repairs, Dubois brought Kuro and Marie into the building where the Firefly memories were kept and set about interrogating them. He had done a pretty good job at pretending to be the concerned parent until he had gotten them in private. Once the doors closed, though, and they were alone, with nothing but a metal table between them in a room full of seashells, he dropped the act. The hound in him emerged, and he stared them down with his predatory eyes until one of them cracked. Marie shattered like glass. She wasn't used to this kind of thing. She explained that she didn't know it was gold. She thought it was just fool's gold, a pretty rock to decorate her dorm room. When the vice principals had checked if they had any jewelry or electronics with them, she'd said no. It couldn't have possibly been real gold. You don't get that much gold from a schoolmate in the Blandlands. It was ridiculous. She almost shouted her defense at the hound, but Kuro could see her shaking and fighting back tears. Once Marie's confession had sputtered to a stop, Dubois turned to Kuro with an accusing stare. What? said Kuro. Could you explain how she got that gold in the first place? asked Dubois. I gave it to her for solstice, said Kuro. Dubois just stared at him and wrapped his fingers on the table. When Kuro failed to elaborate, he said, How? I slipped it into her bag before she got on the bus, said Kuro. So it would be a surprise. You know what I mean, responded Dubois, starting to lose his calm. I really don't, said Kuro. I mean, he leaned in and almost growled at Kuro. How did you get the gold out through the veil? The normal way, said Kuro. There is no normal way, replied Dubois. Something dawned on Kuro that he really should have considered before. Is it illegal? Dubois leaned back and threw up his arms. Shockingly no. Impossible things usually aren't. So, are we in trouble? I don't know, said Dubois. You probably should be, but you haven't actually broken any rules. The real problem, and this is a very real problem, is that apparently it's possible to get gold out of the veil. It's not really that hard, said Kuro. A stray could do it with the right ingredients. You delight in making my job difficult, don't you, Kuro? Well, Kuro didn't want to admit it, as he knew it was a dangerous pastime, annoying Dubois did bring him a certain amount of satisfaction. No, sir, he said. How did you learn to do it? asked the hound. Kuro felt his jaw clamp shut and his heart rate slow just thinking about answering the question. Dubois was quick to react. Never mind, he said. I can guess. Even behind bars, that man is causing trouble. Who else knows what you did? Nobody, said Kuro. Solstice gifts are a secret. Good, said Dubois. Marie? Marie jumped at being addressed. She had been ignored for the past couple of minutes and was doing her best to disappear completely into the scenery. My parents and my brothers and sisters? But they think it's just a pretty rock? Arthur and Moira and Charlotte Cook, they might guess, but nobody else. 
So now I'm left with a bit of a problem, said Dubois. A schoolchild knowing how to smuggle gold into the Blandlands could be quite an issue, particularly one with a bad reputation. Even knowing that it's possible is troublesome. Are you going to take our memories? asked Marie, sounding glum but resigned. That's possible, but I'd rather not, said Dubois. Carving out specific memories would be a challenge, and I'm not trained to do it myself. If I have to bring in someone else to help, they'd know too. What have I promised not to tell? said Kuro. I'd love to say that I can trust you, Kuro. Dubois didn't bother finishing the sentence. I mean a proper promise, said Kuro. He climbed from his chair and found a sharp edge on a chipped seashell. He sliced his thumb open just a little and let a drop of blood fall to the ground. I, Kuro, promise you, Talon Dubois, that I will never tell anybody about getting gold out through the veil. With that, it was done. Kuro felt the promise take hold and file itself into place with all his other magical obligations. Dubois clutched the table and shuddered slightly as the other half of the promise took hold, filling him with the knowledge that the promise was true and binding. What in the realm was that? he demanded. A promise, said Kuro. A real one that I can't break without dying. Where did you pick up that kind of magic? he asked. Can't say. Kuro said almost automatically. He could say, but that would let Dubois know about Bindle, whom he had promised to protect, along with all other Luton. I promised. Right, said the hound, looking at Kuro as if he'd grown a second head. I guess that solves half of the problem. But we are talking more about this another time. No, we aren't, replied Kuro. I just promised. Dubois ground his teeth with frustration. Rather than dealing with Kuro, he turned on Marie. What shall we do with you, he said. Just tell people I made a mistake, she said sullenly. I'm just a dumb blandlander. Maybe I forgot my phone in my bag or something. They wouldn't even believe me if I said what happened. It's impossible, right? They'd say I was crazy. Dubois considered that for a moment and found he was satisfied. That's more true than it should be. Are you all right taking the blame? Do I have much choice? She asked, staring at the floor. Even if you take my memories, it will be the same. I just won't remember why. It's settled then, said Dubois. You better get back on the boat. It won't take long for them to patch those holes. And the longer I keep you, the more rumors will start. Take care, you two. And Kuro, do try to stay out of trouble. The voyage through the Blandlands was supremely awkward. The entire school knew that Kuro and Marie had been taken away by the hounds. They complained to each other about being delayed and made their displeasure known by speaking just loudly enough about Blandos and thieves to be overheard. Charlie and Arthur accepted Marie's story about forgetting something in her backpack. Moira, however, was scandalized. She couldn't believe that Kuro had been returned to the ferry after such a wanton act of destruction. She expressed repeatedly her opinion that Kuro was a thief and a villain, and that this was only more proof of it. She lamented that her brother continued to associate with such a miscreant, though she made no move to leave their company. It made for a very long journey. During the walk to the lodge, Arthur tried and failed several times to start a conversation. I liked the book, he said. I'm glad, said Kuro. 
That was followed by several minutes of silence. The card was good, too. Oh, good. More silence. I was surprised that you gave me a clue. I thought you'd like it. The effort involved in climbing the summer hill stopped attempts at talking for a while. It was interesting, said Arthur once he'd caught his breath. That's nice, said Kuro. The weather had cooled before Arthur spoke again. I talked to my father. He said in the same unwavering tone he'd said everything else, so it took Kuro a moment to notice the dramatic change in subject, and even longer to craft a response that was more than just a single profanity. When Kuro didn't answer, Arthur continued. He said you were right. Kuro was not in the frame of mind to handle that kind of statement. He tripped to a stop and stared at Arthur, mouth agape, attempting to make sense of what he'd heard. He said I should trust my friends. Arthur explained, his features shifting to look like his father as he quoted, That's more important than finding a burglar. Kuro worked to find a way to square what Arthur was saying with what he knew of Dubois, and failed. The idea that he and Dubois would agree about anything was unsettling. That it was about how to deal with crimes was downright unthinkable. He almost shouted at Arthur for yet again upending his reality. Instead, he settled on a civil and eloquent, Oh, I crossed you guys off the list. Arthur retrieved his book of case notes and showed a line through Kuro's and Marie's names. Kuro was moved. Even if Arthur was willing to stop investigating his friends, that didn't mean they were innocent. That he would eliminate them as possibilities went against everything he'd ever said about the proper way to do detective work. He had clearly spent time wrestling with the idea because the page had been worn thin by erasing and replacing the names with lines through them repeatedly. Kuro noticed the same for his sister's name, which he had added to the end of the list. Are you going to keep investigating? asked Kuro. I think so, but just for fun. If my dad couldn't solve the mystery, I don't really think we can. Kuro was pleased to discover that there were some benefits to the reverence Arthur held for his adoptive dad. Do you have a plan as to what to do next? No, Arthur sighed. I keep looking at the clues I have, and they don't make sense. It's no good to twist facts to suit theories, instead of theories to suit facts. What? replied Kuro. The last part sounded like a strange thing for Arthur to say. It was in the book you gave me, said Arthur. It's about a very good Blandlands detective. What it means is that we tried to find clues to fit our ideas but we should have been doing it the other way. We need to find more facts. Maybe if there are more burglaries, we can learn something new. Kuro was glad that his friend was willing to let go of his obsession, for a while at least. He hoped that the burglaries were over so that there was no reason to slide back into constant suspicion. They reached the lodge at long last and went straight to their dorm. Arthur to dump his bags and Kuro to take a much-needed nap he'd been unable to get on the boat. They pushed open their door, and Kuro swore. He was much too tired to deal with what he found. Arrayed across the floor beneath the open window of their little dorm room was a collection of objects, including hairbrushes, hand mirrors, a pair of shoes, a jewelry box, and a leather-bound book. They were unmistakably the items that had been stolen from the other students over the course of the year. Thank you for listening to Stealing from Wizards. If you liked our show, please consider rating or reviewing on iTunes. If you want to support this podcast or just can't wait for the next chapter, the full book is available on Amazon, Kobo, and Indigo. 
Our theme music was written by Camille Saint-Saëns, transcribed by Franz Liszt, performed by Rebecca Verdun, and used with permission. This episode was produced by Jim Tigwell.